Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando and I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director for GP Notebook Education. Welcome to our new season of GP Notebook Podcast. Bite-sized, regular chats for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients. Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Kevin Fernando for more clinical tips and hacks relevant to all those working in primary care. In this podcast, I'm going to discuss some guidance on how to manage that thorny issue of the QT interval and drug therapy in primary care. This is increasingly rearing its ugly head given increased prescribing of drugs such as antipsychotics and antidepressants over the years and particularly since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic which has had a debilitating impact on the mental health of the nation. Now the key reference for this podcast is a very useful drugs and therapeutics bulletin article published during March 2016 entitled QT Interval and Drug Therapy. So first question for us all then, why do we need to be worried about prolongation of the QT interval? Well, prolongation of the QT interval can lead to a life-threatening arrhythmia known as torsade de point. Now, we've had a number of MHRA and other drug safety updates warning us about QT prolongation with several drugs, including citalopram, Escitalopram and domperidone, and this list appears to be forever expanding. Antiarrhythmic drugs such as amiodarone, flecainide, and sotalol, macrolide antibiotics such as clarithromycin and azithromycin, quinolone antibiotics such as levofloxacin, antifungals such as fluconazole and ketoconazole, antimalarials such as quinine and anti-motility agents such as ondansetron all potentially increase the risk of QT prolongation. And of course, this list is not exhaustive. So how do we make sense of this in primary care? So let's start with what a normal QT interval is. Now, the QT interval is measured from the beginning of the QRS complex to the end of the T wave on an ECG. The QT interval varies with heart rate, so this needs to be corrected for. Ideally, we shouldn't rely on the automated ECG readout for the corrected QT interval, as we all know too well how unreliable this can be. Everyone I do an ECG on in North Berwick seems to have had a possible anteroseptal infarction. However, I do appreciate it is time-consuming to calculate and correct the QT interval ourselves. Now, unfortunately, there's varying consensus on what constitutes a normal corrected QT interval. But broadly speaking, less than a 440 milliseconds is accepted as a normal interval. Women do have longer QT intervals than men, with up to 460 milliseconds being acceptable. A borderline prolonged QT interval is approximately between 440 and 500 milliseconds 
and a prolonged corrected QT interval is defined as greater or equal to 500 milliseconds. At this point, there's a markedly increased risk of torsade de point and intervention may well be required. Additionally, past studies have demonstrated that each 10 millisecond increase in the corrected QT interval is associated with a 5% increase in the risk of developing torsade de point. Now, importantly, it's not just certain drugs that prolong the QT interval. There are also a number of other risk factors that also increase the risk of prolonged Q interval and torsade de point. Demographic factors such as female gender, as I've mentioned, and also advancing age prolong the QT interval. Electrolyte disturbances prolong the QT interval, particularly hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and hypocalcemia. Systemic conditions such as renal or liver impairment prolong the QT interval, predominantly due to effects on drug metabolism. And of course, cardiac disease from multiple origins also prolong the QT interval, including heart failure, left ventricular hypertrophy, and recent conversion from atrial fibrillation. Now, crucially, most clinical cases of drug-induced QT prolongation occur in the presence of at least one of these risk factors, with the majority, over 70%, occurring in the presence of two or more of these risk factors. Now, I found this a particularly useful fact to know, and of course, very reassuring for my patients with no other risk factors apart from the medication in question. So really, the key message for us in primary care is that the risk of torsade de point depends on patient clinical risk factors as well as the medication history. So a drug safe in one patient may be potentially harmful in another. And this risk-benefit ratio must always be determined on an individual basis, which of course is one of our great strengths in primary care, applying population-based data holistically to that person sat in front of us, or indeed appearing virtually in front of us these days. So how can we minimize the risks of QT prolongation in primary care? Well, unfortunately, there are scant guidelines published guiding how to manage drug-induced QT prolongation. We have mostly expert consensus rather than evidence-based recommendations. What we do know, however, is that is the risk of drug-induced QT prolongation occurs in a dose-dependent fashion. And additionally, this risk is additive when two drugs with potential to prolong the QT interval are used together. For example, citalopram 20 mg daily has been shown to cause a mean change in baseline corrected QT interval of 7.5 milliseconds. This increases to 16.7 milliseconds with citalopram 60 mg daily. And if I were to co-prescribe clarithromycin for an intercurrent infection, this corrected QT interval would increase further again. Now, there's a very useful website highlighted in the Drugs and Therapeutics Bulletin article called Credible Meds, www.crediblemeds.org. And it has an associated app for both Android and Apple devices. 
Now, this website and app categorizes drugs according to their potential to prolong the QT interval. Additionally, on the website and apps, there are very useful lists of clinical factors that have been associated with prolonged uh, a pro prolongation of the corrected QT interval, such as electrolyte disorders, which I briefly discussed earlier. Now, ideally, we should consider the risk of QT prolongation with any new drug. We use vision in North Berwick, and every time I prescribe something, I have a hundred alerts to click through, most of which mention QT interval. But as well as assessing the risk of QT prolongation with any new drug, we also need to assess patients' other risk factors for QT prolongation, as I outlined earlier. And of course, we should try and correct any potentially modifiable risk factors such as electrolyte disturbance. Now, we should also avoid any QT prolonging drugs in anyone with a background of congenital long QT syndrome. Now, this is a rare genetic disorder associated with a high risk of arrhythmia and premature sudden death. Lastly, if an individual has risk factors and or is prescribed a potentially QT prolonging drug, we should, of course, try and switch to an alternative drug where possible. So, for example, if I'm going to prescribe clarithromycin for a community-acquired pneumonia, but that individual has risk factors, I, I should perhaps prescribe doxycycline instead, which doesn't have a significant impact on the QT interval. We should also counsel patients to report any symptoms such as palpitations, lightheadedness and dizziness, which may require further investigation, including an ECG, which nicely segues into my last discussion point. What about ECG monitoring? Now, whilst I'm very grateful for the support of my mental health colleagues, particularly during this pandemic, I've had numerous requests over the years for serial ECG monitoring for my patients after they've been commenced on certain antidepressants or antipsychotics. This is even more challenging under the current circumstances we find ourselves working in. Actually, a very useful fact I took away from the article in the Drugs and Therapeutics Bulletin is that it's estimated that 16,000 screening ECGs are needed to identify a single case of asymptomatic long QT syndrome. Again, I found this a very useful fact to be aware of and perhaps to gently share with my mental health colleagues next time I get a request for serial ECG monitoring. Now, unfortunately, there is no agreed consensus on when to undertake ECG monitoring and when to follow up patients started on drugs that prolong the QT interval. And of course, it's completely impractical to undertake an ECG every time we prescribe a QT prolonging drug. So what can we do in primary care? Again, this decision to undertake an ECG needs to be individualized, taking into account any risk factors present and particularly if the use of an alternative non-QT prolonging drug is not possible. If the risk of prolonged uh, QT interval is thought to be high, then a baseline ECG should be undertaken, and then it should be repeated when the medicine in question reaches steady state. If a drug is found to be associated with a borderline 
corrected QT interval, 440 to 500 milliseconds as discussed earlier, then a dose reduction or discontinuation of the fending drug is advised. If the QTC interval exceeds 500 milliseconds, then we should immediately discontinue the drug, repeat the ECG, and we may actually need to phone a friend and contact our cardiology colleagues. So in conclusion, the risk of a prolonged corrected QT interval and tossade de point depends on patient clinical factors such as a history of cardiovascular disease or electrolyte disturbance, as well as the medication history. It's well worth having a link to the Credible Meds website on our desktops to aid those challenging prescribing decisions. Finally, ECG monitoring should be considered on an individual basis for those at highest risk. So thank you all for listening. I hope you have found this podcast helpful. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcasts, which are available on all major platforms. Get in touch via social media, Twitter at Dr. Kevin Fernando, LinkedIn, or email kevin at gpnotebook.co.uk if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at www.gpnotebookeducation.com to notch up some CPD points, register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups, and download free resources and shortcuts to make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. <laughs>